Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice at the supporting sponsor of Oncofarm, the Bill Gann College of Pharmacy. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about uh, trastuzumab. Getting back to our foundations of Oncofarm series, talking about this, uh, you know, kind of breakthrough uh, therapy. Uh, and this episode was written. Uh, by Gatton College of Pharmacy, class of 2021 member, Parker Wade, coming to a fellowship program near you. Um, so she wrote this, put the, together tons and tons of research uh, going over this. I'm going to kind of go over her notes here. Uh, as we do in these uh, these foundations of Oncofarm, we start with the history here. And there's a, uh, there's a nice little story to this history. In fact, the story is so good, uh, there's actually a Lifetime movie or Hallmark movie. That's the difference. There's a movie about the discovery and um, uh, making uh, and development of Trastuzumab where uh, the, the lead character is played by, um, oh, that jazz guy from New Orleans, what's his name? You know, uh, he's in Men in Black. Oh, this is not Men in Black. Independence Day. Oh, Harry Connick Jr. Yes, listen to his Christmas albums. Um, all his other albums, too. Um, okay. So, <laughs> we're off the rails already. So, uh, in 1979, uh, Robert Weinberg discovered the HER2 gene. Um, and uh, at this time, uh, Genentech, who eventually brought Herceptin to market, was just kind of starting out. Uh, five years later, so this has been about 84, Alex Ulrich, a Genentech researcher, identified the HER2 protein. So, the HER2 uh, gene made the HER2 protein, and that's what's expressed on lots of epithelial cells, okay? In 86, uh, Ulrich kind of just ran into Dennis Slayman. This is the guy who Harry Connick Jr. would later play in that Lifetime movie. He just kind of ran into him in a Denver airport. Uh, so you had this, uh, this researcher, Ulrich, and Slayman, who's an oncologist uh, and cancer researcher at UCLA. And they kind of ran into each other, and then they, I guess, struck up a friendship and over the next couple of years worked to confirm that HER2 actually uh, is uh, that increased expression of HER2 uh, makes bre these breast cancer cells that overexpress HER2 more aggressive because all breast cancer cells have some HER2, as all epithelial cells do. It's that overexpression of HER2 they found. This made the cancer uh, more aggressive, therefore makes potentially for a good target. Uh, unfortunately, by the time they figured this out, that HER2 increased the risk of, say, aggressiveness of, of breast cancers, Genentech wasn't focused on developing cancer drugs. Think about that. Think about that. Genentech no longer focused on developing cancer drugs uh, in the, the mid to late 80s. So they lost their funding until 89 when uh, one of the, uh, a mother of a Genentech vice president was diagnosed with breast cancer and then he convinced his colleagues that this HER2 target was worth it uh, and then they started up their first clinical trial in 1992 with 15 women. Now, uh, one of the uh, uh, women on that study uh, was Barbara, and her story is on uh, Genentech's website, gene.com, written by Viva in 2017. So in 91, this, this lady named Barbara, her breast cancer was in remission, then it came back. Uh, she talked to her doctor. She kind of wasn't all that interested in pursuing treatment, but eventually her oncologist talked to Dennis Slayman, sent her records there over to UCLA. Slayman contacted her and said, hey, I'd like you to be part of, of this study we have going on for a, a new medicine. Um, and see, she went and enrolled in that. She was one of the 15 on the first study, and she's a 28-year disease-free survivor uh, as of uh, 2017. So now, you know, hopefully that would be uh, be 31 years um, 
you know, call that cure. Uh, and I believe this is the patient in Improvar Maladies uh, that her story is described uh, and somebody describes looking at the pathology report and it's not just overexpressed here too. It was her too everywhere. Uh, so this would be an example of, of an extreme responder. So anyway, you know, trastuzumab looks good, goes through um, by, by 1995, patient advocates are, are kind of pushing the FDA to, to try to prove this based on early clinical trials. Um, and eventually the drug goes on to, to get approved in 1998 based on a phase three study in the metastatic setting, which we'll talk a little bit about later. So that's the history of trastuzumab. Kind of, they kind of got lucky, which is a little sad because it's a really good drug. Uh, and for, for a, for a great drug to require some luck to get to the market kind of shows, um, kind of how revolutionary it was to think about targeting uh, these these pathways, and there are certainly some some similarities and some echoes from a matnip store. If you go back and listen to that episode, so from a pharmacology standpoint, of course, trastuzumab binds to HER2, which is also known as EGFR2. It's in the same family of of receptors, uh, and by binding to HER2, uh, it can lead to antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity, like hey, immune system, kill me. Uh, as I'm bound to HER2, then also blocks HER2, which, you know, is a growth factor. It's an EGFR uh, growth factor. So that's the GF in EGFR. It's a growth factor receptor. So that also will have an effect by blocking that. Uh, we use this for, for breast cancer, obviously, in the uh, neoadjuvant, adjuvant metastatic settings. Uh, nowadays, pretty much always with pertuzumab. Uh, not usually a single agent in, in breast cancer. Uh, also, uh, in gastric cancer, it's got an approved indication for metastatic disease. Some off-label uses as well for other diseases that overexpress HER2, like endometrial cancer. Dosing typically uh, is uh, requires a loading dose. Uh, if you're doing weekly dosing, the loading dose is 4 mg per kg, then 2 mg per kg weekly thereafter. If you're doing the every 3-week regimen, the loading dose is 8 mg per kg, followed by a maintenance dose of 6 mg per kg every 3 weeks. Um, when you look at some of the historical data here, so the big the big paper, the big study that got approved uh, was eventually published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2001 by Slayman and colleagues, uh, the Harry Connick Jr. of Oncology. Uh, and so this was metastatic setting. This was uh, several hundred patients uh, receiving either AC plus trastuzumab or, or um, uh, paclitaxel plus trastuzumab, increased overall survival, uh, response rate was improved by an absolute difference of 18%, three-month improvement in duration of response, uh, about a month and a half to two-month improvement in time to treatment failure. Uh, One-year survival was improved from 22 to 33%, which is a pretty big difference, uh, improved median overall survival of four months. So the number needed to treat to have, one, to have a response was six, and the number needed to treat to keep one woman with metastatic cancer alive one year later was nine. So pretty large treatment impact, right? And the way things typically go in drug development oncology, you show uh, ideally overall survival in the metastatic setting, then you move up into earlier lines of treatment. So that would be in the adjuvant setting. We have several of these. There's NSABP, uh, B31, BCRG06, HERA. Uh, all of these overwhelmingly show improvement in overall survival. And I won't go through all the details here. I'm just going to give you kind of the number needed to treat. Well, let's do absolute difference in overall survival. So in NSABP uh, B31, it's about a 9% improvement in overall survival. That's absolute, okay? Uh, in BCIRG 006, 5% uh, improvement in, in overall survival. In HERA, it's 6%. So you're talking about a number needed to treat to cure somebody easily less than 20, somewhere between 12 
to 20. So if you just settle on 16 right there, I only needed to treat 16 women in the adjuvant setting, uh, adding trastuzumab uh, to cure one additional person, um, which is, is pretty good. The way I think a number you to treat is, I think I've said before, if it's less than 20 of a number you treat, you feel really good about that as, as a drug that has big uh, a big effect size. A number you treat above 100, probably not that big of effect size. If it's between 20 and 100, it kind of depends uh, on the disease state. So that's, that's the benefit of trastuzumab, both in the, in the metastatic setting and the adjuvant setting. Uh, and these numbers are a little out of date now, of course, with uh, dual targeted HER2 therapy. Uh, so that's the benefit. When we look at the safety, though, of course, the nice thing about a monoclonal antibody like trastuzumab is we don't have myelosuppression, so we can add it to uh, myelosuppressive chemotherapy. And there are actually four boxed warnings for trastuzumab. Cardiomyopathy, which you probably already know. Uh, Embryophetal toxicity, which makes sense. Infusion reactions, which uh, clinically are not that uh, significant and, and bothersome. And then pulmonary toxicity. And we'll focus mostly on uh, the cardiomyopathy, uh, which is loosely defined, uh, I think in the PI, by a 16% decrease in LVEF or a 10% decrease from baseline. So going from an ejection fraction of 76 to 60 would get you there or from 55 to 45 would get you to uh, holding, uh, holding trastuzumab. Uh, and there's about a four to six-fold increased incidence of a symptomatic decline in EF in patients taking uh, trastuzumab. And that, those numbers kind of vary just based on noise as well as the, the, the drug that they're given with. Here are some key numbers here. So given with paclitaxel, the prevalence of LVEF decline, this is asymptomatic, is 13%. Given with anthracyclines, 27%. That's why we don't give trastuzumab concurrently with anthracyclines. Uh, with pertuzumab, another HER2 targeting monoclonal antibody, 4%, which is the same as with, actually it's lower than just with trastuzumab alone, which is interesting. Uh, certainly no increased risk of cardiomyopathy, it seems, when adding pertuzumab to trastuzumab. Now, there are a couple of risk factors for cardiomyopathy, or at least LVEF decline, which I should define as left ventricular ejection fraction, decrease uh, with trastuzumab. And they make sense when you hear them. So higher cumulative dose of anthracycline that you've had, uh, older age, heavy alcohol use during treatment, uh, a, a higher baseline EF, which probably is just a little bit noise because you've got more room to go down and how you define LVEF decline, a history of cardiac disease, uh, lower creatinine clearance or EGFR, having diabetes, and then a certain HER2 polymorphism with an isoleucine valine substitution at, uh, 650, at number 655 of the protein. Uh, so it's certainly something that we all know you monitor your echo or your MUGA scan uh, every three months. Uh, and, and you know if you develop this, the treatment approach is, is fairly simple. You, you hold the treatment. Uh, you hope that it reverses itself, which can happen oftentimes in, in a median time to recovery of one and a half months. So if in holding the drug, uh, LVEF uh, returns to normal, then you, then you re-challenge. Uh, and you can help it return to normal by treating heart failure the way you typically would, so ACEs, ARBs, beta blockers. Uh, there is some, some interesting research that's been going on for, for many years now trying to identify people who are about to have LVEF decline because by the time you see that decrease in the echo, you've already caused damage to the myocardium. So there have been some interesting studies looking at can we identify these patients at risk with a biomarker beforehand, looking at some subtypes of troponin. Several studies have looked at prophylactic uh, or empiric prevention with uh, ACEs or ARBs or, or beta blockers that, that haven't shown uh, benefit. Otherwise, everyone would be doing that, as you know. Uh, so that's kind of the safety uh, of trastuzumab. Um, 
we also now have some subcutaneous trastuzumab formulations, which I won't get into as, as we've covered before uh, on the podcast. Um, and then one of the, the last things that, that I want to say about trastuzumab is that uh, we know it has great activity in HER2 amplified disease. Uh, we know that um, from prior studies, this is some historical perspective here, that when patients would progress on trastuzumab, that adding lapatinib, uh, EGFR1, and HER2 targeting TKI uh, somewhat restored the susceptibility of breast cancer cells to dual HER2 blockade compared to just trastuzumab. The same thing with trastuzumab and pertuzumab was first studied in the metastatic setting, so dual HER2 blockade helped to overcome resistance to just one line of HER2 blockade with trastuzumab. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind as patients progress. Uh, and of course, we have a couple uh, antibody uh, uh, cytotoxic conjugates, so adotrastuzumab and tanzine, sometimes called TDM1, and famtrastuzumab deruxtecan. Uh, those both target HER2. So we've got a couple of those uh, as well. Oh, you know what? One of their toxicity I didn't mention that I should because it probably is the toxicity most people will experience with trastuzumab, especially if you add it to a pertuzumab uh, containing regimen as we do now, uh, is diarrhea. So think about HER2 is EGFR2, so you are going to hit uh, you know, some, some epidermal growth factor receptors on normal GI cells. So you, the diarrhea can be pretty significant and dose-limiting. Um, you know, the last patient I saw, for example, on um, adjuvant trastuzumab and uh, pertuzumab had to stop the pertuzumab uh, due to diarrhea. Uh, and then uh, you all probably know this, but since we're on the subject, pertuzumab has no single agent activity. So if you had that scenario where you had diarrhea that was limiting treatment of your HER2 target therapy, uh, you could stop the pertuzumab and give single agent trastuzumab, but could not use single agent pertuzumab because it doesn't have any single agent activity. And they bind to different parts of, of HER2. Uh, so they work complementary to each other. So that is uh, trastuzumab. Uh, I hope... I did Parker proud uh, going through this. Uh, really, just a just a very very good drug. Um, you know, I think uh, very simplistically with new drugs getting approved in terms of baseball, uh, which is a very American sport. But um, you know, a single uh, is not as good as a double. A double is not as good as a triple. And then a home run is what we would love to have. Well, this is it. I, I don't know that it's a home run. It's not curing everyone with metastatic disease, or, or even the majority, certainly. But it's it's a triple, at least. It's at least a triple. This is a great drug, and we're lucky to have it. So thank you for listening. Um, appreciate uh, appreciate the listening through the years. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, at FarmDeepNip. Follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram, at Pod. Until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.